Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome to my intimate situation. Um, if you didn't hear me talk about this yesterday, this is a very much a talk about porn, which means that I will talk about topics of sexuality. Uh, you should also know that uh, the topic of sexual assault does come up uh, for a few minutes. And um, on that note, I'm going to start. My name is Lena. Um, I'm a reporter and producer at This American Life. But before I worked there, I spent the last few years reporting on the porn industry. So in 2014, Belle Knox, who was a freshman at Duke University, started shooting porn in her free time as a way to pay for college. Um, the first scene she ever shot was a casting couch scene. And I'm going to explain what that is, just in case you don't know. In, in porn, a casting couch is a thing you get paid to do, where you sit on a couch, and a director asks you questions. He's filming, so it's POV porn. It's from his perspective. The questions he asks are along the lines of, like, do you like to have sex? And then the girl says, I do, and then they have sex. Um, the same thing happens in Hollywood, but it's uh, not paid, and it's illegal and predatory. Um, OK, so in 2014, Belle Knox put out her casting couch um, like introductory film, and I saw it, and it's like it's my favorite video, I think, of all time, and it's why I started getting interested in porn, and I'm going to play for you now Belle Knox's casting couch interview. Um, well, as I said before, I'm Belle, and I grew up in a small town, and growing up, I was always kind of a nerd. Mm -hmm. I was actually um, captain of the debate team in my high school, mm -hmm. so I was always the girl that was just really nerdy and really smart. Um, I was voted most likely to be president <laughs> in high school. Um, so I guess that, you know, guys didn't really look at me like I was, like, you know, sexy. Mm. I was kind of, but I think I, I'm kind of like a closet freak. People okay. just don't know it. Okay. Um, and in my free time, I like watching scary movies. I like reading and I like running. Running? Really? Like as a hobby? <laughs> okay. Were, were you on like the uh, track team or the cross country or anything like that? No, I, I was too busy doing debate and studying to be on any sports team. Okay. I've never, honestly never met anybody that was on a debate team. So that's oh, kind of yeah. interesting to me. How did you get started on that? Well, I like arguing. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> There's a sexist comment there I'm not going to say. <laughs> Women love arguing though, right? <laughs> this one does. Okay. Um, how long did you do that for? I did that for four years. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So all through high school? Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, 
how does it work? Like, do you guys go to like a sports team? You travel to other schools and you debate well, their their team. Or? It's like you. It's like you all go to a competition and then you get paired up with somebody and then you just like argue with them about a certain topic. Uh, and I was good at it. How do they decide a winner? Um, they decide a winner based on who's the best at expressing their arguments and the best at talking. I'm good at talking. Okay. But I mean, how do they score it? Um... Like, do they say, you made a good point, that's, a, that's one yeah. point? Well, they score it based on how well you think that you present yourself and your argument. Okay. Okay. What was your, uh, a topic you liked to debate the, the, the most? Your favorite debate mm -hmm. topic? Probably... I'd probably have to say the one where we talked about whether or not people should have to get vaccinated. But that was interesting. Really? Mm -hmm. what's, what's your stance? I'd love to hear it. Um, I think that <laughs> to protect the public safety, sometimes we have to infringe on people's liberties. So, so you're for it? Yes, I am. To what degree? Um, I mean, I think that everybody should have to get vaccinated. I think it's like a societal obligation. So. And then get a license and bring back your abilities to, to have children? Well, to be able to like enter school and... Oh, you mean, oh, vaccinated, okay. Vaccinated. Just vaccinations, okay, mm -hmm. okay. Sure, okay. Regardless of any health problems that could arise from them. Well, I mean, you can always get disease. <laughs> but that goes against the, uh, your philosophy there. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> Okay. I'll let you win this one so we can continue <laughs> on. <laughs> I always win. Okay. <laughs> All right. um, so how long have you thought about doing this? Um. That was Belle Knox's casting couch interview. Um, it's my favorite casting couch interview in porn. So, okay, so the guy interviewing her, he's not doing anything wrong. Nobody in this video is. Everyone's just doing their job. This is literally what they get paid to do. She answers questions about how much she likes to be sexy and have sex. He asks questions about how much she likes to be sexy and have sex. Then they have sex, and then the job is done. But there's something about the way this interview meanders, how Belle stops playing the character of Belle Knox just for a minute to talk about where she stands on the topic of vaccinations. And this guy, he has no clue how to respond. He tries making a sexist joke. Halfway through the conversation, I think he realizes what vaccinations are. <laughs> and then at the end, when he doesn't know where to take it, he lets her win this one and then ushers the conversation back to porn. It makes me so excited about every story that isn't being told, every question that isn't being asked. Watching this Casting Couch interview genuinely makes me feel like a half-empty glass is suddenly half full. Um, in 2016, I started working on a new project with the journalist John Ronson. It was about porn, specifically Pornhub, and we wanted to understand how the proliferation of free, readily available porn was impacting the people who literally make it. And so I started cold calling porn stars, which truly got me nowhere. And I happened to be working for one of those companies that's owned by another bigger company that has all of this money. And so money wasn't a problem. And so I went to LA and I stayed there for almost two years. And my first day on a porn set was delusional. I wore heels because I thought that's what you wear to a porn set. And uh, that's not true. Everyone wears like sweatpants unless they're 
naked, and I didn't really know how to ask questions yet, which is kind of what my talk is about. Um, so here is tape of me on my very first porn set. Uh, we were shooting interracial stepdaughter cuckold three. The cuckold, who's um, the guy in the corner, his porn name is Marcelo the Slave. He came and sat next to me on a white nylon couch, and then this happened. What was that? Kamini Cuckolds. That's, that's the company I work for most often. Wait, say that again? KaminiCuckolds.com. KaminiCuckolds.com. Okay. So you get an idea of what we have. Yeah, I, I can picture it now. It's an ugly picture. Well, the ugly picture pays my rent, so I'm very happy. Oh, my dad went. Isaiah looked at me like I was an idiot because I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I was literally showing up to the same director's porn set every day for weeks until something happened. I didn't know what that something was. John and I just figured we'd know it if I saw it. Of course, my relationship to porn has evolved a lot the more I was around it. Sets are so lo-fi, I would end up floating into shots. And later in post... And post is just the director, Mike Quasar, sitting in his garage, editing on Final Cut, but also tweeting every couple hours about how great libertarians are. Um, Mike would send me copies of shots that I'd accidentally ended up in. So this is from the set. <laughs> this is from the set of Don't Tell My Husband I Fucked the Maid. Um, this is my first week in the valley. That's Blair Williams on the bottom and Bridget B on the top. Um, I was waiting outside for Mike to call cut, and I didn't realize the direction he was filming in. John Ronson says we could have renamed this movie My Disapproving Cousin. <laughs> this is one year later. Um, it's a couple weeks before I turned Butterfly Effect in. That was the name of our show. And by this point, I had no reason to not, or I had no reason to go to set anymore, but I didn't really know where else to go during the day to cut and score the show. So I just go to wherever Mike was and make it on set. Um, the rule was that I couldn't type too loudly during the dialogue scenes, but it didn't really matter how much I was typing during the sex parts. Okay, so at the end of this year, I do think something strange happened to me. I accidentally became a porn activist. Like, instead of believing porn people were victims of their own circumstances, which is what so much porn reporting is about, daddy issues, history of sexual assault, trafficking, I became convinced that porn people were victims of us, the viewers. And to an extent, that's true. The vast majority of porn made in the US is made legally, and porn made legally isn't really made that differently from top 40 radio, it's just algorithms. What we, the consumers, seek out most 100% dictates the porn that's made. So when you look at the top of uh, Pornhub for like the top search for keywords or genres, and you see that incest porn or interracial porn or MILF porn or gangbang porn is trending, that's not coming from a group of business people in a boardroom somewhere deciding what we should watch. That's literally what we, the consumers, are searching for. And it becomes a bit like a snake eating its own tail. We search for incest porn, which creates a demand for incest porn, which means that porn companies trying to stay viable make more incest porn for us to click on, and then the cycle continues. Some companies have tried challenging the porn consumer's proclivities. For instance, condoms. Technically, it's against the law to shoot raw porn, raw porn, which is just porn without condoms, 
Um, that's for obvious health reasons and also for the sake of optics. One way to get people on board with safe sex is by normalizing safe sex. And so in 2012, California made it a law that porn people have to wear condoms to shoot. But what production companies in the San Fernando Valley found out was that virtually no one, and I mean that no one, it's like less than 5% of people, are willing to watch porn that features condoms in it. Internet users would just keep scrolling to older scenes from before the condom law, and people who pay for their porn would just pay for backlog porn, which again is just porn without condoms. Which means that even though this bill was put to a vote and more than 55% of California's voting population said yes to condoms in theory, they didn't actually want to see condoms on their porn stars. So yes, a lot of a porn person's livelihood, reputation, and desirability, that all comes from us. But I was really wrong to think of this as a good guys and bad guys thing. Early on in the butterfly effect, John and I had a list of questions we were trying to answer. A trend we'd noticed is that despite the downtick in profitability in the porn industry, more teenagers than ever were showing up in the valley to try making it as porn stars. We had a theory, which is that my generation, I'm a millennial, and anyone younger than me grew up with porn in a way that no generation before us had. Like, the first time I became aware of porn was in fifth grade. I found a folder on my family computer. It belonged to my brother, and he had titled the folder Biology Class. <laughs> And when I opened it, I found a video called Fuck Fu, and it was some kind of crouching tiger hidden dragon porn parody. And honestly, I don't think I was even a sexual person yet. I certainly hadn't hit puberty. I was not masturbating. I did not know what an orgasm was. But there was this internet, and kind of any word I could think of plus a .com equaled some new thing. Like, I remember going to sex.com in my classroom, um, like computer labs, um, fuck.com. And in this totally unsexualized way, I became extremely accustomed to porn years before I even had my first kiss. And I'm going to leave the moralizing to someone else, but the theory John and I had was that people just like me and loads of people younger than me just didn't associate porn with stigma, not in the same way previous generations had. And so teens right now who are posting photos of themselves in bathing suits and photos of themselves trying on clothes in dressing rooms... The steps between that and being naked on the internet just aren't that wide apart. That was the theory. Fewer inhibitions because of oversaturation, meaning more willingness to do porn. And so we wanted to ask the performers themselves, the 18, 19, 20, 20 21-year-olds, what made you decide to start this work? Are you conflicted about it? Was it a mistake? The series ended up walking away from that question. It's in there, but it just wasn't the most significant thing we found. But there was this one girl we talked to who answered in a way that really stuck with me. This isn't tape that we used in the show, and it's bad quality. Um, you're going to hear a couple loud noises. Uh, we're on the set of Cheerleader Stepdaughter Orgy. We're talking to Alexa. Here's Alexa. I'm Alexa Grace. Uh, and how old are you? I'm 21. And um, so what, what brought you into porn? I was trying to build a portfolio for mainstream modeling, and I got offered to do porn, um, and I did it, and I've been doing it ever since. And how long have you been doing it for? For two and a half years. And, so, and how do you feel about, I mean, the fact that you were hoping to get into kind of mainstream modeling, do, do you think you've sort of taken a bad turn, or do you think it's okay, or? Um, no, because I've met um, a lot of girls from mainstream modeling, and I hear kind of the horror stories that you, have to, I guess, 
in a vulgar way, you have to suck more dick to, to get to where they are, to, you know, get certain shoots, to shoot with certain people. Um, so, and then they came over here and it's like, well, you get paid for all of that. So you don't have to, I guess, kind of bore yourself for free, I guess. Okay. At first, this struck me as radically honest. She wanted to get paid to model, but she didn't want to suck dick in order to get the chance to be paid to model. And as far as Alexa's is concerned, sucking dick for free is what stands between an aspiring model and modeling. So she cut out the unpaid middleman. Just get paid for the whole thing. I thought it was impressive. I even felt kind of intimidated. But as time went on, my thought about that response has evolved. I actually think Alexa was being kind of defensive. Like, who are we to ask her at her place of work if the job she's doing to get paid is a bad turn? I'm not saying it's not a question worth asking, but for me, it just doesn't feel like the question I want to be asking these people. The question, is it taking a bad turn to do porn, has been answered over and over again. In fact, just one year earlier, Rashida Jones had put out a documentary on Netflix called Hot Girls Wanted. Hot Girls Wanted is a 90-minute long documentary exclusively about the business of recruiting amateur porn performers in one part of Florida. It does not paint a pretty picture, but it does paint an accurate picture, except for one thing, which is that it's only accurate when it comes to this one part of the country, Florida, where it's not even legal to make porn. The vast majority of our country's porn is made in California, where it is legal to shoot, and where loads of checks and balances have been placed on the industry. In California, every single scene requires producers to verify the age of performers. In California, you cannot shoot a scene without passing a twice-monthly STD test. In California, if you do test positive on an STD test, except for herpes or HPV, which statistically 70% of the people in this room have, and it's just not that big of a deal, if you test positive for anything other than those two things, there's an industry halt that automatically gets triggered, and no one is allowed to shoot until that performer is treated. California is not perfect, not by a long shot, but it is regulated. And Hot Girls Wanted did not account for the rest of the country, the places where most porn is made. And in the Valley, it had become really contentious. Porn people were so wary of reporters. Mike Quasar even referred to me as Connie Brasco for my entire year there, which is a play on Donnie Brasco, who is an FBI agent who secretly infiltrated and dicked over a mafia family. Here's Mike. When I first met you, one of the first things you yelled at me and you yelled at me a lot was <laughs> you did you yelled all the time and it was always she's going to ruin us she's going to ruin me she's about to ruin me she's ruining me so you had a bias against me but it sounds like more broadly the media and i'm wondering where that bias comes from uh it just comes from years of seeing uh, people fishing for ratings because porn is a story that when they when they report on it it uh, draws in viewers um, I've never seen anybody report on porn in a unbiased uh, fashion. And when I say unbiased, I mean your agenda wasn't to make us look good or to make us look bad. It just was reporting. Everybody traditionally has gone into doing stories about the porn industry with an agenda of sex trafficking, drug abuse, uh, molestation, uh, all the damage. You know, and while some of that is certainly true, it is not the uh, the norm for most of the people that do porn. So, so many pornographers have expressed their exhaustion to me with being depicted as victims, victims of themselves, victims of each other, childhood victims of abuse, 
adult victims of domestic abuse. The porn star Casey Calvert told me about a recent interview she's given to the BBC about shooting a kind of virtual reality porn that'll allow users to interact with a life-sized hologram of herself. She said the interview was full of red flags, and I asked her, what were those red flags? The red flags look like inappropriate questions. They, 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 they're, they're tone in questions. They're, they're things like... Do you feel, do you, you know, I want to talk about how this technology is exploiting you. Oh, wow. That's it's, very it's, pointed. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like word choice. It's like word choice and leading questions. And then the questions were the worst, grossest. Do you feel exploited by this technology? Do you think that men will take advantage of your body with this technology? What do you wish you had done differently when signing the contract? Can you tell me your contract details? Her questions made it inevitable that I talked about it from that perspective. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't answer her questions without saying things like the word exploited because she wanted me to repeat the question back to her so that they could cut her voice out. Mike told me about a CNBC documentary that he'd been asked to participate in like 10 years ago. Uh, they told him it was about the performer Sasha Gray, someone that Mike used to shoot a lot. So he said, that's fine. Come to set. Please only record me and my producer, Nate, from the back. They had him sign a release. He took their word for it. Mike said he didn't want his kids' friends' parents finding out that he shoots porn. And when the special came out, it was called Porn, the Business of Pleasure, and it wasn't about Sasha Gray at all. Mike says it opened with a chapter on high-end porn, fancy sets, big budgets, special effects, and so on. And then they're like, and there's also low-budget porn. And they literally cut to me, right? <laughs> and it's just me and Nate, and Nate's holding the boom. And I'm just like, all right, let's get this thing going. So yours is shown as the face of like... A low-budget porn. I am the face of low-budget porn. So not that, you know, you should be prouder of being the face of high-budget porn, but uh, when my daughter is 12 years old and she's playing soccer and this thing is being rebroadcast every fucking hour on CNBC, and I just feel nothing but shame because I know I'm being judged, it was, a, it was a, definitely a, a low light of my career. Mike is one of the most boring vanilla people I've ever met. His favorite bands are the same bands he loved when he was in high school. His liter uh, favorite band is literally Rush. When his... <laughs> When his dog, Molly, was diagnosed with arthritis, he took two days off of shooting porn to write reflective short stories about how much he loves his dog. He lives in Woodland Hills, California. He likes to go to Cabo for one week a year to sit by the pool, which he has in his own backyard, even though the beach is only 40 more feet away by foot. Casey Calvert told me about a day in the Life article she agreed to do when she first got into porn. This was for Playboy. She says she blocked off two days on her calendar, took the reporters rock climbing with her. Then they went to yoga. She introduced them to her two dogs and her three cats. And when the article came out, she says there wasn't a single sentence that was factually right. The headline was, Casey Calvert has always been a bad girl. Now she's finally being punished. <laughs> it outlines the life of a, quote, repressed and confused middle-class girl from Florida. And the part that bothered her the most was the sentence, quote, Casey quit college to get into porn. I have a bachelor's of science in film production and minors in anthropology and zoology. I graduated magna cum laude. They were just pandering to their readers. They, they weren't actually interested in this story about me at all. 
they were just pandering to the readers of the magazine who are looking for jerk off material. And the, the, I think that a lot of porn consumers dislike when their porn stars are intelligent. It kind of creates this cognitive dissonance and then they, they want their porn stars to just kind of be trashy, stupid whores because that makes it easier for them to jack off to them. I can't bowl every porn user to find out if they prefer their porn stars to be dumb. But Casey, uh, telling me this reminded me of a small section from season one of The Butterfly Effect, where John visits a radical honesty circle in Louisiana, where a group of Christian youths are sharing their most shameful secrets with one another, hoping it'll create some kind of accountability, uh, that it'll make them stop. And he met this young woman. Her secret was that she watches porn. I started watching it in like sixth grade, and I just became more interested and... It escalated to that, and I would just pretty much watch just whatever I could find. For a long time, I never told anyone that I was going through a pornography addiction. As a Christian, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the watching of it. I don't agree with the business, but I did it. And did you ever think about the 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 people in the scenes, the porn actors, or did you ever think about them, like what what their lives were like? I guess I really didn't care about them. I just kind of cared about myself when I was watching it. And you never like got so into it that you would actually say, oh, there's James Dean or there's... you." No, I never got... I never learned their names. <laughs> it's kind of like... I guess it's kind of like whenever you uh, kill, a, kill a deer, you don't name it because then you can't eat it. When Butterfly came out, that one line, the comparison of porn people to animals hunted for meat, that really stuck. So many porn people have since told me that it's the most succinct summation of how they feel they're received by civilians, which is what they call us. We are civilians. I don't begrudge this young woman her bias. It's totally understandable. Something my mom likes pointing out is how hypocritical it is that her friends will say on Facebook how proud they are of my brother for his like, promotions and his public school job, but when I put out my porn stories, they won't engage with it. I don't begrudge them for that either, but I did spend a couple years feeling extremely smug about my objectivity, my giant heart that was just willing to look porn people in the face for what they are, regular people, and that actually made me really biased. When I talked to Mike, he told me about a PBS Frontline documentary from early in his career. It was from like 2005. It uh, highlighted a particularly problematic porn director, this guy Rob Black, who was so bad that when he asked Man of the People Larry Flint for help, Larry declined. He was, uh, Rob Black was sued by John Ashcroft in 2003. Rob's company, Extreme Associates, depicted rape, which is a genre of porn that can be consensually depicted. But in the Frontline documentary, uh, they highlighted this guy's particular genre of it, which the consent part of it was shady at best. Mike's complaint is that the Frontline doc purported to be a look at the entire industry when really it only focused on this one outlier of a guy. And that was one side of the story. And I feel like that did a lot of damage to the industry that, you know, uh, they're all a bunch of, you know, scumbag, you know, guys in like track suits, you know, like the mafia, like, yeah, these bitches, these whores, you know, like that, you know, and, you know, here's the thing. A lot of it's, it's, there is a lot of ugliness in the industry. Mm -hmm. There's just no middle ground. Now you either support sex workers or you're against them. You know, you're either a Republican and a racist or you're a, a liberal and you're a communist. You know, there's nothing in between anymore. There's no nuances to anything because it's all pointed so that the hashtag applies. 
Mike has a pretty big get-off-my-lawn edge to him. But the truth is, when I finished Butterfly, I was on the polarized left when it came to sex work. I felt like I was doing something radical by choosing to like these people. And then August died. So August Ames was an extremely popular porn star who in December of 2017 took her own life. It happened less than two days after she tweeted something inflammatory. In short, she'd been booked to shoot a scene with a guy who was rumored to have also shot gay porn, and HIV and AIDS stigma is still super rampant in porn. Mostly straight performers do not shoot with crossover performers, which in this case just means men who sleep with men. And so she refused to sleep with this guy, and instead of the studio canceling him, which is what she was expecting, they canceled her. And she got mad, and then she tweeted this. Whichever lady performer is replacing me tomorrow for exotic erotica X news, you're shooting with a guy who has shot gay porn just to let you know. BS is all I can say. Do agents really not care about who they're representing? I do my homework for my body. The tweet didn't go over well. Lots of people, including porn people, weighed in to tell her how disappointed they were in her politics. But then, 36 hours later, August killed herself. And the story that spread was that August killed herself because of cyberbullying. When John and I started looking at August's life, we noticed a ton of details that really broadened the scope of why she might have chosen to take her own life. And the one I want to focus on today is an allegation that she'd made of sexual misconduct on a browser set just six weeks before she died. I got these text messages from a couple, a couple different people, and they're texts that August had sent after she shot this particular scene. I'm going to read you guys the text messages. Um, this, is, this is the upsetting part. Yesterday, I was seriously done and not having it, so I was raging after my scene. The guy was ra- way too rough with me. He was dragging me around. He choked me with my panties, slamming my head down on the table, and was just way too rough, and the scene didn't even call for it. I was so enraged that when he pulled me down to kiss him, I spat in his face. I literally was just so disgusted by him. I spat at him. Like, I'm into the rough, kinky sex, but with someone who I have chemistry with, and if we talk about boundaries. But this guy just went full-on war machine. It was Marcus Dupree. He doesn't shoot much anymore. He's Russian. So he was just talking down to me in fucking Russian, and nobody on set said shit. And I was literally in panic mode, so I froze, and I didn't say no or stop. I just wanted it to be over. I was looking at the sound guy with help me eyes, and he was looking back at me with I'm sorry eyes. I always talk about being strong and my own boss, but I didn't say anything yesterday, and I should have. I swear to God, I'm not letting that shit happen to me again, but I was in Vegas, and we were already shooting most of the day, and if I had walked off set, I wouldn't have been paid. Something I've talked about a lot with porn people is Me Too. Me Too really has permeated in so many ways, in so many places. But I have to say, most every woman I've spoken to about it in porn feels super conflicted. Not about the notion of what constitutes sexual misconduct or assault for us, the civilians. Just how do they, porn people, fit into Me Too? Because the truth is, everyone who does porn sometimes has sex that they just don't feel like having. The porn star Joanna Angel once put it to me like this. It's like a bad day at work. And a bad day at work for me doesn't look the same as it does for a lawyer. And a bad day at work for a lawyer just doesn't look the same as it does for Joanna. And so I put that to Casey. Is my bad day that different from her bad day? No, it's not. It's not different at all. 
are, and are, I think yeah. I, I think that concept is really really hard for people to grasp. I see no emotional difference between the overworked office minion who their boss just gave them this big project and the deadline is tomorrow, so they stay in the office literally all night long to finish this project and they don't want to versus the person who is doing the sex acts that they don't necessarily want to do. But people like to extrapolate the latter into abuse in big capital letters. It needs to be okay that I have a bad day at work. Like that, that needs to be okay. That needs to not automatically mean that there was sexual assault. It's really complicated, right? Like I feel super uncomfortable even playing that tape and it has nothing to do with me. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to parse out thoughtfully and contextually where what Casey just said fits in with civilian allegations of sexual misconduct. John and I read those texts that August had sent to the producer who was on set that day, but, and this is very important, this producer was not in the room when August shot her sex scene. This guy swore that he loves August, that they were great friends, he misses her so much, and that they were really close. She was like a sister to him. But when we read him the texts, this is how he responded. I don't even know where a lot of that is coming from, to be honest with you. I don't know how much of those, that statement is hyperbolic in nature or how much of it is actually true. But I do know that, I mean, August, August obviously had tendencies to kind of rage out in, in her language. Look, you go through an entire day on set. If things are moving in a certain direction that would lead to that, I think we certainly would have seen something along those lines. But it was the entire day was kind of played off to me by her as like, you know, this guy's annoying. That's a far cry from this guy is violating me, choking me with my pants. Like, I don't even know if that was like a part of the scene. Like, you said that you were out of the room for like 30, 40 minutes. I mean, it's possible, but I'm not in a position to ask for the video as evidence because this obviously is not a trial like you know we're not in a we're not in a situation where um somebody pressed charges also too like i wouldn't be a part of something like that i love that response so much he is so clear on his love for porn his love for porn people that it's become inconceivable to him that anything happening inside of their very isolated world could possibly go wrong And that's the problem with a good guy's, bad guy's narrative. If you'd, quote, never be a part of that, then when you actually are a part of that, you just don't know it. There's something else that August said in her text messages, and it's this. When I did the sign out, which is what they record for these reasons specifically, I said everything went fine and that I had a good time. But I was holding back tears because you don't get paid if you say you were uncomfortable. What August is talking about are exit interviews, which are done for legal purposes. Basically, the director films himself asking you, the performer, if you consent to the sex that you already had. It's really bizarre that there's footage of um, the scene. Like, like the mind fuck for me when I was trying to rationalize the story was knowing that there technically is evidence that will prove one side or the other, but part of the thing about sexual assault is that it doesn't always look like anything. Um, I'm getting emotional and I'm surprised by that because I know this story so well. Um, Just bear with me. I got to watch the footage of the scene that August shot with Marcus. 
It was never released, and I'm not supposed to say how I got access to it, but someone showed it to me. I had to fly to Vegas, and I had to sit in the locked room alone with the person who was showing it to me, who was staring at me the whole time because he was so convinced that there was nothing wrong with the footage. Um, okay, I've been on hundreds of porn sets, and I feel very clear on what porn sex looks like. August did not look happy throughout her shoot. Most everything she describes in her texts is what happens on screen. But there is this tape of her at the very end answering the consent questions. The director asks her, were you treated well today? And her answer is yes. And then it hits me. In a split second, suddenly I had my aha moment. It took me weeks. A few weeks later, I realized they're asking the wrong questions. Because for the rest of us, the word yes usually equals consent. But in porn, the word yes doesn't really mean anything at all anymore. I want to take us back to better days on the set of Interracial Stepdaughter Cuckold 3. I had recorded tape that day of the sex that was had, and I was listening back to it, and I put something together that I want to play for you guys. This is Melissa and Isaiah having sex. You guys can lighten up this. That wasn't. That was good sex. That was fine. <laughs> um, and and I want to take us back to cheerleader stepdaughter orgy. I recorded the orgy sex, and I'm going to play that for you. The problem with yes or no questions is that most times they force your subject to live within the binary of your own ideologies. Was today a good day, yes or no? Do you like your mom, yes or no? Were you treated well today, yes or no? And that's my talk. But before I bring up um, the second half of my talk, which is a human being, who I refer to as a human. Um, I want to play for us a little bit of a palate cleanser. So I had Mike cut together a suitable for work trailer for Cheerleader Stepdaughter Orgy for us to watch. We are Bobcats. We are Bobcats. I've got to say, Dave, your stepdaughter was coming along lovely. She's really well out there. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I noticed that, but. Um... Mark's stepdaughter's looking pretty good. Hey, she's actually very, I mean, she's probably the hottest at lunch. I didn't notice, I didn't notice your stepdad watching us, and I was like, must be his name, or something. The premise of Cheerleader Stepdaughter Orgy is that a group of cheerleaders are in the backyard of someone's mansion, never specified why or whose, <laughs> to practice cheerleading. All of them happen to have stepfathers who all happen to be the adults tasked with picking up their stepdaughters from cheer practice that day. And then when they get there, the stepdads realize that each other's stepdaughters are hot, and then they all have sex. <laughs> This was the day on set when I found out my favorite technicality in porn, which is this. 
In order for insurance companies to agree to cover porn shoots, the actual act of incest cannot be implied. And if any of you watch porn, you probably know that one of the top most searched for genres of porn is step-parent, step-child porn. And up until that day, I just assumed that a swath of Americans like really got off on the idea of fucking their step-parents. But it's actually just that that's the rule punk, uh, porn companies are held to. So each of these scenes have to include some sort of bizarro detail, clarifying that no one in this scene is actually related through blood. They're only related legally through marriage. And I happened to catch tape of Mike on set that day, uh, making sure that that makes it into the plot. One of you has to say that they wish they had a hot stepdad. Because otherwise that makes two of you possibly sisters and we don't want that, so. Thank you guys so much. Okay, but stop clapping. Because um, we still have we we still have more to go. Um, I'm gonna have uh, Sydney Leathers come on. Sydney is a sex writer and sex worker who has written for Penthouse, Washington Post, Exo Jane, and Vice. In 2013, she found herself at the center of former congressman turned mayoral candidate Anthony Weiner's sex scandal, by which I mean a sexting scandal. Here's Sydney. Um, Sydney, welcome to Third Coast. Um, I was talking last night about why I think it's so exciting but also funny that I brought you here. And I'm going to say something radical, which is that I believe probably everyone at Third Coast um, is like, is like, like loves sex workers and is thrilled to be around sex workers. But I also believe that it's very unlikely that most of us have been in the same room as a porn person. And I think it's just fun to have you be in the same room as us. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. Thank you for being my accessory. Yes. Just, <laughs> thanks for calling me a human and not a dead deer. That's greatly appreciated. Holy fuck. <laughs> um, Sydney, I want to talk to you about Anthony Weiner. And I want to first um, well, I want to contact. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about what your relationship to him was. So I'm wondering if you can just start by explaining to us who you were when you were in touch with him and how you came to be in touch with him. I was just a super normal 22 year old when I started talking to him. Uh, I was getting ready to go back to school. I was hoping to go to law school eventually. Yeah, super normal, boring person, boring life. But I had this like secret sexting relationship that was kind of like the exciting part of my life. So. Was he paying you? He was not paying me. So if he was paying me, maybe none of this would have came out. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's so dark. <laughs> um, okay, so you had a, a sexting, like a, like a phone relationship with Anthony Weiner. Did you know who he was? Oh, yeah, I totally knew who he was, and that's why it was cool to me. It was kind of somebody I had on a pedestal, so... So that gave him the power in the situation. You know, he definitely knew that he was somebody I had on a pedestal. So yeah, there was kind of an, un, not kind of, there was definitely an unfair power dynamic at play there that I didn't think about until, you know, much later. There was something you told me um, a few weeks ago that I thought was interesting, which was that you wanted to get into politics and somehow that played into the, the, the meeting, or like the, not the meeting, the relationship with him. Well, I didn't really want to get into like working in politics, more like writing about politics, that kind of stuff. But yeah, he would like dangle job opportunities in front of me and say like, oh, I can get, I remember specifically it was like, oh, I can get you a job uh, working for Politico. You live in a swing state and you can have this column about being, a, you know, a 
a liberal person in a swing state before an election. Um, at one point, he had offered to get me an apartment. So there would always be kind of like the dangling of, you know, something to keep me interested without ever actually getting, any, getting anything from the situation. <laughs> so tell me about the day that you realized your life had changed. Yeah, so the day I got outed was pretty insane. Um, I'm sitting at home and I check my Facebook messages and a complete stranger had messaged me and it just said, you're going to be really famous. And it had a link to a BuzzFeed article and I clicked on it and yeah, found out that I had been outed. It was my full legal name, photos from my social media and just connecting me with the whole scandal. And the scandal was that he had slipped again or was this the first slip? No, this wasn't the first. I think this was the second and there have been a couple more since then. I can't believe I just <laughs> said slipped. I said slipped because it feels kinder to him, but I don't care about him. Um, so the second fuck up is what it was. Correct. Okay. Yes. At least I was of legal age. I was not the 15 year old. So yeah. Uh, she came later, right? Sorry. What? She came later. She came later. Correct. Um, yeah. She's 19 now. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you get this message and then tell me about the work that the Buzzfeed reporter had done to corroborate the story or to get in touch with you. Yeah. This is like the upsetting part to me. Um, they had reached out to me, but they only gave me an hour to respond to them, which obviously is highly unethical. Um, I didn't even see. Wait, tell me why that's obvious to you. Because I didn't even see the message. Like the article was up and then I saw the message where they had reached out to me. An hour is just not enough time to give somebody. I mean, I'm on my phone a lot, but I'm not glued to my phone so much that I'm going to see every single message, you know, as they come in. So I think it's only fair when you're going to completely fuck up somebody's life to give them a little bit of warning. I think an hour is not sufficient. <laughs> yeah. Something we talked about yesterday was, um, what constitutes a public person, right? Like we, I think we as reporters talk a lot about how if a person is a public person, that is what gives us the right to tell stories about them and tell stories that might not be particularly flattering to them. And you actually had a really interesting response to how we can report on public people without jeopardizing the privacy of like those of the periphery. Yeah, I think for me, like, I was 22 when I started talking to him, 23 when I got outed. I had no desire to be any kind of public figure, I, and I wasn't one. So that was part of why it was upsetting to me to be outed. I just felt like he's the public figure, so there was really a story without me. You didn't really need to use my legal name. I had really wished that if they would have given me proper time and maybe offered to like run it under a pseudonym, or there are just a lot of ways you could have done it without using my legal name, because that really you know makes me unemployable. When you, especially if you're a woman in a sex scandal, that's a scarlet letter, you know? So that is something I have to worry about when I'm, you know, applying for apartments, applying for jobs, like pretty much even dating, like every scenario in life, this is something that comes up for me. Uh, it's something I've had to go to lots of trauma therapy for. <laughs> but yeah, so I think if somebody is young and not a public figure already, give them the opportunity to, you know, run it under a fake name. You don't have to blow up somebody's whole life especially if, you know, there's a story without using their legal name. If somebody's a politician, obviously they're open to plenty of scrutiny, but yeah, young people who are just normal, everyday people, not so much. Can you tell us about some of the consequences of that hitting the news? 
Oh, God. So I lost my job immediately. Um, I lost pretty much all of my friends because I come from a really conservative area. So that was troubling. I even, I, I would say some, most of my family was cool, but did lose a few family members that no longer wanted to be associated with me. So there are a lot of like real life consequences. And again, this is something that comes up constantly for me in life that I know I'm always going to have to deal with. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a complicated situation. I'm glad I have a great therapist. <laughs> and in the aftermath, like I have a lot of um, like admiration. I, I think is the word I'm looking for 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 like how you chose to proceed. And I'm wondering if you can explain to the room like how did you react? Like what it, what were the steps you took after to to just like take back the situation? It's complicated. So my initial like being in shock kind of reaction was like, okay, well, my life is over. I should probably kill myself. And then I realized I have cats to feed. So that doesn't work. <laughs> so my next, <laughs> it's literally true. It's funny, but it's true. Uh, so my next thought was just like, okay, well, what am I going to do now? Like I have bills to pay. I didn't have a ton of money saved at the time. I was 23. I was an administrative assistant at a law firm. I didn't make a lot of money. Um, I just kind of thought, okay, well, what can I get from this scenario? Like kind of how can I exploit it? Because I knew I was going to be exploited, which I absolutely was. <laughs> so I was kind of trying to find ways I could make it a little better, a little more, I don't know, worth it, I guess. And what did you do? Um, porn. <laughs> porn was part of it. Um, paid interviews, like tabloidy kind of stuff, which I know especially to like real journalists, it's like, oh, you would do something with the Daily Mail. But if they're paying you really well, you're kind of like, well, why wouldn't I? You know? I love that. I love that we got put in quotes. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, so, but talk more about the choice to to get into porn because, okay, so this is another thing I didn't know before meeting Sydney, which is that um, Sydney Leathers is not her porn name. Like, that is just the name that she was born with. Yes. And and we feel that potentially the coupling of the names Anthony Weiner and Sydney Leathers, it, it, it just sounds splashy. Like, that might have been. It does. I think it's part of why I got outed because there were people he had been sexting with after, like, of legal age. I'm not talking about the young one. Like, there was a woman in her 40s after my situation, and they ran stories about him and this woman without using her name. She wasn't outed at all. So I guess if she would have had a sluttier sounding name, maybe she would have been outed too. I really do think that that's part of it, weirdly, just that I have a an odd name. <laughs> um, and so I want to talk a little bit more about the decision to get into porn. Like, like walk us through, like you, you frame it kind of like you figured you might as well just rip off the rest of the bandaid. Yeah. And I want to understand more about right. that. It took me a minute though. Um, I had gotten the offer at first. I said, no. Wait, what was the offer? Uh, I got an offer to do a movie for vivid, uh, which of course they put out, they put out a press release and they were like this million dollar porn offer. They did not pay me a million dollars. I absolutely wish they had. <laughs> they did pay me well, considering I, I made more than the average person would make for a day on a porn set. But it was because it was your big first thing. Exactly. But but the complicated part of that is that part of the offer is that you have to use your legal name. You know, if my, because my legal name was in the headlines and that's what they wanted to capitalize on, I had to use my legal name as my porn name. So I knew that was going to be like an extra layer of complication for life. Um, so initially I wasn't going to do it. Um, they let me do a nude photo shoot and they just filmed like a behind the scenes of the photo shoot and they 
Uh, did, Wait, like, what's a, behind the scenes of a nude photo? That's shoot? what's funny. They presented it to people as if it was going to be like a masturbation porn, but there was no masturbation. So I'm sure that anyone who purchased that was so bummed <laughs> because it's like so boring and like nothing good happens I'm at a, all. I'm imagining like, you're naked like this for some reason and someone here is taking a picture and then and someone that's literally behind it. you is taking a picture yes. of that. Yes, and that was literally the whole thing. So that was my first like little step into it. And I was surprisingly more comfortable doing that than I thought I would be. So then they kept bugging me, trying to get me to do it. And I finally, the main thing that made me decide that that was a good option was that, I don't know, if you're, if you already have a scarlet letter and you've already been in a sex scandal and if somebody Googles your name, they're already going to see all this sketchy stuff. It kind of felt like, well, this isn't that much worse, right? Everyone's already going to think I'm like a crazy slut. So might as well make some money being that way. (laughs) Um, Okay, so had the reporters that broke the, the sexting story gotten in touch with you in an adequate amount of time, or had given you adequate time, what are the questions that you wish they had asked? I don't even know if it's so much about like questions I wish they would ask as much as it's like how I, I wish they would have just thought about it a little more, I guess, or like, um, I don't know, just think about how you would want your, like, sister or good friend treated or, yeah, just think about, you. even though I'm sexual, like, think about me as a human still. <laughs> like, don't only think about me as, like, a headline or a punchline. Um, yeah, don't forget, like, the humanity in the situation and maybe try to treat a person like a person. And I felt like from the jump that wasn't really happening, and I think it's because I have a stupid name. <laughs> Are you saying that people with daughters and mothers should be able to identify with women at the center of sex? No, it's, it's so funny. No, honestly, and I've, I've mentioned this point before, is that when talking about, like, rape, a lot of people get offended. Like, why would you have to think about your sister in that scenario to have empathy? But I have always felt like whatever triggers somebody's empathy is actually a good thing. And I feel Uh like in this situation specifically, like it does make people a little more empathetic when they think, oh God, like if that happened to my daughter, I would be so upset, you know, but if they just think about me as like the average, like sexual person, they don't care as much. But if you like bring their family into it, it's a little more personal and it can kind of bring up more empathy than they would have had otherwise. I really like that response. (laughs) Um, so we have about 15 minutes, and I want to open this up to questions for me or Sydney or both of us, um, but it should be one of us. And I think Third Coast <laughs> wants you to ask them into a microphone for posterity. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, so I'm kind of curious to understand, like, how you, uh, Lena, like, how you covered 
So there was a point in your talk where you were saying like you were getting you were like, oh, I'm so glad to talk to these people, and like, I'm I'm have such a big heart to like see these people as people, um, and I wonder like, so just like I don't mean to like use this to talk about myself, but like I cover like the gun community, and I think a lot of people don't want to hear about gun owners in a like positive light. Just to clarify, you're not talking about like mass shooters. You're talking about just like people who no, own like guns. People who own guns. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I wonder like how you um, like embed with a community and like get to know them really well, but like still remain critical of the whole thing and still like ask really important questions. Yeah, I think about this a lot. I don't, so the word critical is fine, it, um, but it bothers me a little bit because it, it implies bias or at least like colloquially it implies bias. And so the, the way I frame it for myself is, um, is not to stay critical, it's just to stay curious. Like, and this is really, really hard because all of us in this room, whether or not we like believe this about ourselves, we really do believe that we know the answers to many of our own questions. And in our day-to-day -day lives and with like our boyfriends and our moms and our cats, um, we do. And it's, I think it's like a muscle that has to be trained that, that like you need to turn that switch off when you go to work and when you go to work you're just not talking to a person you like or don't like anymore. You're talking to a person um, who makes you curious. And this is, I don't, I'm not great at this. I'm working on it. John, like the thing about Ronson that I think is like so incredible and what I really learned from him is the more um, despicable a person gets in, in responses to questions, the more excited and curious he gets to like really nail down the bottom of like where that's coming from. And I think, so that tape that I played of the guy on set who just doesn't agree that August saying that something bad happened means that something bad happened, like that was a moment. I was in the kitchen, we were in that guy's kitchen and I was holding the mics up. Um, and I just started hating him the moment he said that, like visceral, like fuck you, dude, and John, like had a smile that was only getting wider. <laughs> um, because whether or not it turns out that this person is a good person at the bottom of it doesn't matter as much as being able to, to lay out for your listeners exactly who this person is and not limiting it just to what we believe the answers to questions might be. Hi, um, it seems like after hearing the tape from Mike, like porn is kind of unique in that um, like they're very wary of negative press. So I was wondering what you think like activists or journalists or sex workers can do to like make a Me Too moment, to encourage a Me Too moment in porn. I think the first thing is to separate those categories and be very clear about what the, what the boundaries are like that stand between those three categories of people. Um, when I say that I became too pro-porn, I have an example, which is that in, I think it was 20, no, it was 2016, it was when Trump won, that year, um, Prop 60 was up for election in California. It was like a continuation of the condom law, which was that not only is it required for, for porn sets to use condoms, but that any person in the state of California would have the right to press charges against any set that was found to not be using condoms. And like there is there is an argument to be made for how that keeps people safe, but there's also like Reagan country California where where like people just like they lean more conservative and the fear was that tons of conservative Californians would take advantage of that and and effectively like push all porn out of California. Um, and I became uh, like an advocate 
and I started like I would tweet about how like Californians should vote no and I like did interviews about how Californians should vote no and I like DM'd Californians I knew I'm sure I think David is literally someone I contacted to say like vote no and at that like the minute I did that was the minute I stopped being a journalist um I was an activist and I think I think that Sorry, I'm, I'm like, I have a lot of thoughts on this because I'm working on a story right now at This American Life that it's like, it's just so dark and so hard and it's so clear who, who the victim is in this story. And it's like, it becomes even more imperative to never let that show. And that's for the sake of the victim in that story. Like the less, the less that I, the journalist, am, act, am an activist in the direction of the people that I'm trying to cover, the more clear what is wrong will be, like the more clear it'll be what is wrong. And then the people who can actually do something about it, which really isn't us, the journalists, all we can do is document. The people who can actually do something about it, hopefully will. Did that, was that helpful? Like basically the answer is as a journalist, the way to be supportive of sex workers is to cover sex workers and to not just cover them, and to hold yourself accountable to not just covering them from the victim perspective. Hi. Um, so you were saying that when you first met Mike, he was like, you're going to ruin me. This is your awful as a type of person to be like, why did he let you in? Why do you think that that happened? And why did you choose him as the one you would hang out with all the time? OK, so I'm going to tell you guys the real answer, but I but I feel guilty saying it. I think that being at the time a woman in my 20s like worked and um <laughs> Like I don't like I don't think John could have showed up at uh, Mike's set and gotten every. Do you agree with this? I actually don't agree. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. <laughs> Yay! Wait, what? It's okay. No, but I I think I know Mike, so, and I I love him. He's like one of my favorite people in porn, and I I think either you or John could have gotten to him. I think he's a good judge of character, and he knows if somebody's bullshitting him. And yeah, I think either one of you could have like properly gotten him to warm up to you for sure in the same way I have. <laughs> yeah. Like but more broadly how do we like how do we enter communities where we are not welcome is the is um is a great question that I don't I don't know the answer to but um, listening to sex workers is a great start. But how do you get them general. how do you get them to even give you the chance to listen? Um, try to go in and put away all your like preconceived notions and yeah, try to be as unbiased as possible. And I, also it helps if you like have already done some of this work, you know, so someone can see how you've reported on it or. I tried, do you guys know who James Dean is? He's, he's contentious. He's, he's, um, he has been accused of sexual assault. Um, I wanted to talk to him for a story once and I emailed him and, and, and said my name and I said, um, who I work with and the people in the porn community that I have spoken with in the past who could vouch for me. And I apologized for contacting him on his personal email address and I gave him my phone number and left it to him and he called me. And what he told me was um, the way journalists approached him, have approached him in the past, is usually they'll text him and say, I don't mean to be invasive, but is it true that you raped X? And like the like the the that, like the mind fuck between like I don't mean to be invasive, but is it true that you were invasive? Is like that's like Dean talked to me about that for like 15 minutes and just had so much to say about it. Um, and so regardless of where you stand on 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 the allegation, it like it was such a meaningful conversation to me, and that it proved. It just proved that like going slow and kindly is is the way. Yeah, it really does matter like your first interaction with somebody because I've had so many journalists approach me and like 
kind of a rude or shitty or weird or creepy way that that first like email or first, yeah, first whatever exchange, that's usually how I judge like whether or not that's somebody I would be willing to even talk to because you can kind of get the vibe of how it's going to go. Yeah. Just by that. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for this. This is such a great talk. Um, I wanted to ask Sydney if you could point to a time when you had a really wonderful interview, maybe wonderful is a strong word, but like fair. And um, that was reflected in something in something that was published and kind of like walk us through the elements or the questions that that person asked. I've actually been really lucky. I've had, you know, some bad interactions with journalists, but I've also had a lot of really, really, really good ones. So, and the good ones definitely like outweigh the bad. Um, I think more about like in-person interviews, like Howard Stern was really fair and amazing to me. And you would expect, yeah, you would expect because I am like a sexual person that he would just treat me like a dumb bimbo because I was in a sex scandal, but he didn't do that at all. He treated me like a real person and was very respectful and lovely and wonderful even after um, so that was a really great one. This is going to be a really unpopular answer, and I'm almost afraid uh, to say it. Can I guess it. what it is? <laughs> yeah. Is it Joe Rogan? No. Oh, sorry. It's it's worse. <laughs> Who is it? It's worse. Sean Hannity was really lovely to me, oh, wow. and I hate everything about him. I hate his politics, but he treated me like a real person, and I think he was like pleasantly surprised. And I, part of it is I know he treated me like a real person partially just because he felt like I brought down a Democrat and had I done that to a Republican he probably wouldn't have been as nice Um, but I do have to say he was super lovely to me he like introduced me to like his little daughter I don't know I was just like shocked Um, we disagreed on pretty much everything but in a nice way and it was just yeah very pleasant and I'm still mad at myself for not hating Sean Hannity so (laughs) do you do you you remember the types of questions they asked you though that were different I I don't even think it's so much the type of questions as the tone and just like treating somebody like a real person and I don't know yeah just not expecting the like dumb bimbo answers or just treating me like a dumb bimbo yeah it's more about the tone I feel like than even the exact questions Uh, my question is did you have an audience in mind for the butterfly effect and the last days of August, and do you feel like you reach them? You know, is that audience different? Butterfly reached um, people that don't listen to podcasts in a way that I've never done before. Um, by which I mean, butterfly reached people who who love to watch porn and are happy to say so, and would skip the inauguration to go to AVN. Um, but the truth is, we didn't know that going into it. Like, I don't think that John is particularly thinking about who these things are for. I think especially because he's not from here, like he gets to just not categorize Americans in any particular way. Um, I will say what's been surprising in the aftermath is that the people who contact me about Butterfly, like listeners, are the kinds of people that I probably will never meet and like don't, don't like they, they're certainly not at Third Coast. It's like guys who fucking love porn and they only follow porn stars on Twitter and like respond to every photo of a porn star to say like, so cute today. And <laughs> they'll, they'll write me to say like, it was so nice to get to hear more about these people that they love so much. Um, and then August was, it's August like, for better or worse, just like really reached the same audience that serial, not serial, God, I wish, that... Um, <laughs> that any, any other like, long-form narrative podcast reaches that's represented at Third Coast. Yeah. Um, so you kind of brought up the moments where you started asking questions like at the beginning, and they were kind of like, 
so penis. <laughs> so penis. <laughs> and I'm Big. wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if you remember or like uh, rem remember the point at which you started like asking the kinds of questions that you wanted to be asking. That you felt like you were kind of like getting the hang of like the point of what you were going after. Honestly, not until after I realized that they're not actually my friends. Um, like it was, it like the the the. I think the reason Butterfly is good, and I, and I do believe that it's good, and I think it's because I was the producer and John was the interviewer and he was the host. August um, became more of like a collaboration, but Butterfly, I was very much the producer, and so the stakes were high, like they're always high, but they were they were lower than they than they eventually became in the second uh, series that we made. And for the first half of Butterfly, at least, like I really was in LA, driving to the valley every day with these people all day. They knew about like my breakup. They knew about like my friends at home who weren't paying rent on time, like whatever the fuck they knew about. And, and they were my friends. And like, I think the reality is they still like, they like Mike will be my friend forever. Like he wouldn't fucking get on the phone to talk to someone if he didn't like, he, he has no reason to do like third coast interview phone calls. Um, they will be my friends forever. But when, but when I stopped when I stopped thinking of subjects as people that um, could potentially become my friends is, is like, I'm not putting it on. Like, I think that's genuinely when my questions changed. Hi, um, thank you. I, the question, I have one question for you, Lena, and one for Sydney. So Lena, just piggybacking off of her question, what would you do differently in that situation if you were gonna do that story again? start over, you're new to the porn industry, but knowing what you know now, how would you approach that particular scenario where you sat next to Marcelo? There's a slave, Marcelo's a slave. Um, I'm gonna give the wrong answer and say I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it differently. Like I, like, I think we all get to learn lessons and we all get to take a long time to learn the kinds of reporters we wanna be. Objectivity isn't even an objective thing. Um, and the truth is the way, like, the way that I pushed myself into that industry has created a space for myself in it where I can now, I, I believe that I can now report on porn for the rest of my career and that is what I want. Um, and I don't think, I don't think if I had approached it differently that it would have, I, I just don't think it would have gotten me anywhere. And so I feel comfortable talking about that first year as like a little bit of a mistake because I, because of how confident I feel now in like this being the right space for me. Does that help, or does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> and Sydney, my question is, um, oh, I almost forgot it. Oh, so BuzzFeed, I didn't completely follow um, the story there, but had they given you an apology, or what, what could they, they have done <laughs> to kind of make you feel better about the situation or the story in the, in, you know, in the aftermath? Um, not only did I not get an apology, the guy that outed me mocked me on the anniversary of outing me. So yeah, they're not sorry. They don't see me as a person. Um, yeah, so that sucks for sure. I have had a lot of journalists be really, really lovely to me, but yeah, that situation was really, really ugly and nasty and traumatizing to be quite honest. And yeah, um, I think that they just think that I don't know, I'm just some overly sexual person with no feelings, I guess, and it just doesn't matter that they like blew up my whole life. I don't know, it's really weird to me, yeah. <laughs> and you had expressed to them like the- Oh yeah, they, I mean, they know, and I've done a lot of interviews where I've said like, I was outed by BuzzFeed and it was so traumatic, and yeah, they don't care at all. <laughs> okay, I'm 
I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. This is kind of terrifying. Um, um, well, I was just wondering, um, you mentioned some of the wrong questions to ask, um, talking about how uh, the porn industry fits into the Me Too movement, and just in general, and I was wondering, this is a question for both of you, um, what are the right questions to ask? I couldn't ask August this question um, because she is not alive, but I've thought a lot about I've thought a lot about what I would have asked her uh, pertaining to the, the sexual assault allegation. Um, and I think the first thing I would have done is ask her to define for me what constitutes assault for her, because it doesn't mean the same thing for, for all of us, and it especially doesn't mean the same thing for all people on porn sets. Um, I think that would be a really great place to start. I think just be as conscious of somebody's feelings even though they're in porn, think about like how you would talk to your friend or somebody you care about. Just treat them like a person, really, is the most important thing, I think. This is something I was talking about this morning with, um, with a coworker. I think that I'm sure Sydney has this problem. It's a problem that I, I have just because I report on porn, which is that people feel, um, I've noticed people feeling very comfortable telling me things that they probably wouldn't tell other people, if not like nobody else. Um, and I, and I try to, ex well, I mean, I, I just kind of wish that weren't a trend for me, and I try to extend that same courtesy to, like, whatever the, the kind of person is that I'm interviewing. Yeah, and, and that is true. I do, people do dump their, like, emotional sexual traumas on me a lot, and yeah, it's a little overwhelming. I've got my own stuff to deal with. Wait, what do they tell you? <laughs> oh, my gosh, their deepest, darkest, like, kinks, or, like, I don't know, something traumatic that's happened to them with, like, an older, powerful man. I don't know, just about everything you can imagine. <laughs> Yes. They just feel comfortable, especially if somebody has watched you doing porn. I think if they've seen you have sex, they think they know you maybe a little or, yeah, or if they, yeah, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> What's your question? Um, so you've uh, kind of painted a lot of the reservations that people had in like letting you in to, you know, their circle or being willing to talk to you. W what do you think it was that eventually something you said or did that, that kind of got you past that? Well, I'm going to start by telling you what didn't work. At the beginning, I would, um, when I started going to set, I did a lot of uh, that no judgment thing that I played you guys the tape from. I would say, like, hi, guy, like, I'm sex positive, so, like, I'm not like other reporters because, like, I think it's all great. Um, and they would actually, so many of them would roll their eyes and say, I've heard that before, and I'm sure they've heard that before. So that wasn't the way in. I remember a day on set when Mike found out that I knew about the movie Kiss of the Spider Woman, which is such a deep cut. And I, for some reason, he was shocked that I knew about it. I think it probably came out before I was born or something, but just like some, some, like in some context, this movie came up and I think all of a sudden it clicked, at least for me and Mike, that porn wasn't the only thing that we had to talk about. And then everything was just kind of different after that. Um, those are, those are my two responses. And I think what made me trust her and John, like the work that they've done, being able to listen to those podcasts and how respectfully done they are, like that obviously made me much more comfortable and you've been lovely, so thanks. Thank you, thanks. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I was curious if you could talk a little bit more about uh, 
na navigating the stigma of, of porn being your job. So when you look at it as a job and it being a performance, as a, it's, it's like, like any other job. You know, but there's a lot of people that look at the stigma attached to it and say, you're a porn star and this means something completely different. So how do you navigate that saying like, this is my job, I'm at work, uh, when people aren't thinking that way? Um, I think one funny thing that I try to remind people is that the most traumatizing part of porn to me, it's actually people's perceptions. It's not doing porn itself. It's how people treat you because you've done porn. Um, I've actually, I've had more bad sexual experiences offset than I have on set. I've never had anything bad happen to me on set with a performer ever. It's, it's not always some, I don't know, shady, <laughs> creepy scenario that people might think it is. Like it's very professional and yeah, just a normal job. I don't know. <laughs> I think one thing that I've, that I, I mean, I don't have the answer, but one thing that I noticed really quickly in the Valley was the extent to which porn people um, stay together. Like, mm -hmm. it's such an insular community. That's very true. They're all married to each other. They all live together. Uh, like, they like they all have the same tax woman who <laughs> knows all of their legal names. Like, I, sorry, I was with um, Lexington Steel once at a Whole Foods. He's a porn star. And his tax lady was, like, there. And they like hug. She was like a seventy-five-year-old woman, and they like hugged, and it was a bizarre sight. Um, but in any case, what I've noticed is that the way they navigate the stigma is by avoiding the stigma, which means just sticking to each other. It's true. When she was going through all the stuff at the beginning, I was like, oh, I know this person and that person, and oh, I love this person. It's easy to kind of stick within the community because you know you're not going to be judged, and it is. Definitely harder, like dating is much harder. If somebody is not in the business, people are very confused by all of that. Like I haven't done mainstream porn in two years. I mostly webcam now and people still can't even wrap their heads around that and I'm by myself in my living room. So yeah, people have very weird perceptions of what it means to do sex work. Thank you. Hi, um, Lena, I listened to both the series. I just thought they were masterful. Um, and something that stood out, I think, it felt like there was a really strong moral and ethical compass in action as you were making it. Um, both the, the series were so kind, but it also seemed like you were constantly challenging yourselves and what you thought um, and willing to reevaluate. And I was just wondering how you, through this long process, um, were able to, to maintain and kind of stay on course. Um, by staying curious. Uh, and that it's it's really hard. I, like I know that that's something we say to each other a lot, and we throw it around. It's really hard to stay curious because, for the most part, especially right now, we really do know what we believe. And challenging yourself to just challenging yourself to stop believing it, literally just for the hours that you're doing your job, is really hard. And season two is really hard. Um, and I and and John and I both have spoken about this openly. Like we were both really depressed when it was over and when it came out because. Uh, we didn't want to throw the people we care about under the bus. We didn't want to be the people who don't throw people under the bus because um, we want to protect them. And I didn't want to perpetuate stereotypes that I, I don't particularly care for. Um, but what, if I want to keep doing this work, which is what I want, then I'm going to have to accept the fact that stereotypes not always but sometimes exist for a reason. Like it comes from somewhere and there are people in porn who are having a bad time and like I think it would be a disservice to them to pretend like it's only rosy. So I think it's just always like like it's just a what it was a Libra, what is it called? 
A balance. Libra was my first word. Um, <laughs> honestly, like he and he and he and I are like each other's worst, uh, like devil's advocate, devil advocates. What the fuck is plural of that? Devil's advocate. Um, <laughs> where any time I would, like, have a thought, he would challenge it with whatever, like, the opposite camp would think. And, like, having someone that you trust to talk to that way is, is also, like, a great way. And, yeah. Hi. I, I listened to the, um, to the first season of Butterfly Effect, and the reporting was fantastic. And hearing you today talk about your process of starting out um, with, like, a certain perspective and then, of course... Uh, having that evolve throughout your reporting process, um, but then also realizing at some point that you became an activist, describing yourself that way as a, as a journalist, um, and then coming to a point of nuance towards the end of your <laughs> narrative arc today. Um, I'm, I'm curious about where you think you're gonna go in your reporting in the future, and what your goals are almost philosophically, and whether, it's, this is a big, intense beat that's a really, and not many people are doing it. So it seems like a lot of responsibility. Um, so I'm just curious about how heavy this is as a responsibility for a journalist, and also what you kind of want to do next in your reporting in this, in this genre and this, this beat. Um, I want to keep doing porn stories. I like, this isn't a secret. I say this at fucking work every day. Um, I want to tell porn stories for the rest of my life, and I don't know what that looks like right now or what that means. Um, despite this American life being public media, I actually think I'm in probably the best place to keep doing the thing that I want to do right now. Like, the resources and the talent are, like, it's just unmatched, and I, I can't fucking believe this is real, but I remember my first Friday night at This American Life, um, we had just put out an episode, and... We have like a tradition where we all like drink a little bit of like liquor on Friday nights when the show goes out. And I was standing with Ira and my coworkers, Neil and Bim, and I think Aviva. She was our previous fellow. And something came up. I responded to it with like a porn anecdote, which is what I love to do. And someone said, How do you know that? And I looked Ira in the eyes and I said, Because I love porn. And it wasn't um, badly received. And I don't, like, Ira's great. I don't think that's specific to Ira. I think that, like, also culturally things are shifting and, like, people are just, like, I don't think I'm going to be one of the few people telling these stories for long. I think, like, we're in the middle of a shift and more and more people, hopefully people here, will start picking it up as a beat. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm still really early on in my career. I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to be doing this for a long time, so I don't know what it's going to look like next. The industry's kind of disappearing, so... Um, it kind of depends on what happens with the industry, I guess. Hi, um, I'm wondering, I think one of the criticisms that I hear of the porn industry a lot is like, and I think you kind of touched on this when you said like porn stars being victims of viewers, um, the criticism that like perpetuates ideas about what sex should look like and that that can be like violent towards women a lot. I'm wondering for both of you what you think like even if that porn is produced ethically, like what role does the porn industry have or like what responsibility does the porn industry have in like navigating that and like setting our like cultural expectations for what sex looks like? Well, I have a complicated answer. I think that it shouldn't necessarily be entirely porn's responsibility. I think it should also be like, oh, we should have proper sex ed and parents should talk to their kids. And and we should teach consent from like We should absolutely, toddlerhood. that should be part of, yeah, sex ed for sure. 
Um, but on top of that, I also have complicated feelings about tube sites. I really don't like Pornhub, and I don't think it should exist. I think there should at least be some sort of real age verification. I don't think that that should be out there for like five and 10 year olds to look stuff up. Um, so as far as like porn's responsibility, I would love to see all the tube sites go away. It's just been horrible for, for children, for the porn industry all around, just bad. So <laughs> in the same way that like, I feel like in the last 10 years, um, body politics have changed, right? Like we don't, we're, I don't know if like you guys look at models and don't wish you looked like that. I still totally have that problem. But I do know that I live in a world now where I am told like, you don't have to pay attention to the messages society sends you and your body should be whatever the fuck your body is. And I don't know why there hasn't been a similar shift in how we talk about porn because it's not real sex. I'm so sorry to be revealing this. <laughs> it's not real sex. Like it's synthetic in so many ways. It's like, it's mostly not real orgasms. It's so often not real cum. Like, it's just so not real. It's a performance. It gets people off. Like, it does its job. I don't know at what point it became, I don't know at what point people became, uh, started believing, I guess, that, that uh, like, the sex that you have at home should look anything like this other thing, which is, like, it's very much its own thing. Um, I don't know how to fix the problem. I just feel very clear on on the two, on, on how separate the two should be. Yeah, I ask kind of as a follow-up question to that, yeah. you kind of like touch on that, but Sydney, I'm wondering what do you think like we, like culturally, who are not in the porn industry can do to like kind of, I don't know. I think maybe start with, you know, treating sex workers like humans, um, talking about porn in a more reasonable way. Um, owning that you watch it. Yeah, owning that you watch porn. It doesn't have to necessarily be like some shameful thing. Um, Paying for your porn. Absolutely. Part of why I don't like Pornhub. <laughs> Um, another thing I've heard from a lot of people in the Valley is if you like, pick out a few porn stars that you like and subscribe to their specific websites. Yeah, um, for sure. It's a great sustaining model. There's only, does OnlyFans work? It does. I have an OnlyFans. Subscribe to my OnlyFans. OnlyFans, <laughs> I think, is like Instagram, but you pay, like, you pay yeah, to have access to basically. someone's feed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, stole your, I, I, I stole your answer from you. Is that okay? <laughs> it's totally okay. Okay. Um, I, I really love you guys and thank you for coming. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.